powerful words that we sing. A question I have to ask myself, even as I come into this pulpit, have I come broken to be mended? Have I come empty to be filled? I so appreciate Jeremy's prayer for us. But we recognize that being able to gather here, being able to read and hear from God's Word is such a grace and one that we don't deserve. May we not take for granted our fellowship because let's be honest with ourselves. Apart from Christ, would we really be hanging out with each other on a Sunday morning? In a world that cherishes pleasure, leisure, entertainment, and self above, above all else, why would we gather here except that we have been compelled by the truth of God's Word, compelled by the love of God's Son? We've been working through John's Gospel for just over two years now. And honestly, as I get to these two verses, which I know you all have heard me quote and read from again and again and again and again, we may think there's nothing new to uncover. And here's the thing. There isn't anything new to uncover, but because of our hearts, we need to hear the same truth again and again and again and again. And if we look at John's Gospel, as we're going to try to look back at his time, I hope you'll realize that John writes all these things because we needed to hear the truth again and again and again and again. And we need to recognize that as grace upon grace same words that he uses in his prologue. Jesus is grace upon grace. So before we dive deeper, let's stand up and let's read these two verses and let's pray that the Lord would give us grace to understand. Reading from John 20 verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, I come before you as one guilty of not believing. 
Lord, I believe. But Lord, my life so often Lord, demonstrates the characteristics of unbelief. Lord, I know that this letter, inspired by your Holy Spirit, written by our brother, or is written, Lord, for the Christian and non-Christian alike. Lord, that we might believe and have life. Lord, not just life eternal, but life here and now. And Lord, life as you define it. Life as someone who represents and knows you. For eternal life is to know you. To know your Son whom you sent. So Lord, this morning as we read this text, as we review so much of what John has written in these wonderful signs, Lord, may you give us hearts that believe. Lord, may you cast out all doubt. Lord, by your power, may we put to death our sin and our selfishness. And Lord, by your strength, by your might, may we stand as believers living in light of your kingdom, which is here and now, even as we anticipate when Christ will fully come. And put all things under subjection to Him. So Lord, may You give us grace to understand. May Your Word be fresh in our minds. May You soften our hearts, Lord, to convict and to show us, Lord, where we have not believed. By Your grace, Lord, may we believe and may we have life. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting, as we look at John's gospel as a whole, we had broke down his gospel into two parts. Looking at John 1 through John 11 into chapter 12 as the first book. That was the book of signs. And we got that word sign is kind of synonymous with miracle. We, John looks specifically at certain miracles that Jesus performs and he calls them signs. And then the last part of the book as he finishes climactic sign with his, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it begins the book of glory as Jesus com- reveals himself to be the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Redeemer who's come to die on the cross. He's preparing the disciples. So we have that upper room discourse and then he goes to the cross and willingly and joyfully lays down his life to redeem a people for his own. We've seen him risen, graciously calling and speaking to the disciples and opening their eyes to understand the scriptures to to prepare them for the mission he said that as i was sent now i send you and we saw last week as he 
very graciously, makes himself known to Thomas, removes all doubt, but doesn't do it by just showing him, but does it by convicting him. Because to see the Lord, the risen Lord, to see God in His holiness, to see God in His glory is to be convicted because there's no way out of that. We see His holiness. We see our sinfulness. And what did Thomas declare? My Lord and my God. Thomas makes that declaration. And Jesus rebukes him but challenges him Yet again, in verse 29, said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, the signs were visuals, but the faith that comes from signs is actually not portrayed. If you go back and look at John's Gospel and you see as Jesus, there's the word belief is tied when it's, uh, there's the result of a sign early on in the Gospel, it's portrayed negatively. You'll remember the, maybe in John 5 the story of the lame man who's healed on the Sabbath. He's healed, but his belief is shallow. He doesn't truly see who Jesus is. But you go to the next man who's healed, who's healed the blind man, healed on the Sabbath, and he proclaims the Lord and says to the Jewish leaders, do you want to be a disciple of him too? We see this boldness, this joy. But what we need to see with these signs is that they're not the solution for all. What the signs do is the signs point to the truth that was already there. Now I want us to unpack this. So John says in verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So, and we know that if you go read the, one of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you'll read about a lot of miracles that Jesus does that aren't recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's not because it's contradictory. He's saying, look, I couldn't. If you go back and read, at one point John says, if we're to write about all the signs that he did, they would not fit into all the volumes of the world. All the books in the world could not contain them. That, that idea... Jesus was doing miracles left and right. But even as John displays them, not, o- not always were the signs and wonders the solution. You see, the signs and wonders, they pointed to who Jesus really was. See, John has written of these signs, for they declare the divinity of Jesus. They affirm what's already true, that He is the Messiah, the promised one, but they only affirm that which is already true. And see, when he reveals himself to Thomas, it's extraordinary, gracious revelation that's given to Thomas. It's undeserved revelation, and it's undeserved, and in so it displays the love of Christ for his disciples. And here's what we need to get. The revelation of God through His Word to us, it's just as much undeserved. But it proclaims the grace and love of our Heavenly Father and of our Savior. 
We know that this is true because of the very nature of how John describes it at the beginning of his gospel. In John 1, verses 9 through 11, as he's introducing everything in the prologue, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came into the world and the world rejected him. His own people rejected him. That isn't the end, though. Because even as the world stands in condemnation, Jesus makes the Father's known. He makes the Father's promises known. John 1, verses 12 through 13, right after that, it says, But, so even though the world didn't receive him, but, to all who did receive him, receive, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we didn't deserve this revelation, but it's been given to us. So my question is. As John says in this gospel, he says, these things have been written, these signs have been written, so that you may believe. So I want us to review the signs this morning, but I want us to review it for the purpose of, do we see the signs as they point to the reality? Not just a miracle, a fantastic story, but do we see the signs as they point to the reality, and do we believe, and is that belief evident? in our lives. And you see, to believe, as John 1.12 says, is to receive. To believe is to receive Jesus for who He really is. To recognize who He is. And what it was happening with the rejection of His people and the world, the light that had come into the world, is they were rejecting the truth the creator of the world had taken on flesh and was dwelling among them full of grace and truth see to believe Jesus is to receive him we see this in John 3 verses 31 through 36 he who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way he who comes from a heaven from heaven is above all he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So listen to that. As Jesus was telling Nicodemus what's wrong with the world, why he needed the new birth, he needed to be born again, Jesus explaining this as he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, talking to the Son of Man. Yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony, so whoever accepts, doesn't reject the testimony of Christ, to do so he must recognize that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son 
has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The signs are given to us so that we might believe that God is true, that His Son speaks the truth, and that truth is that we are condemned because of our rejection of God, all of mankind. But Christ has come to redeem. So why the signs? The signs are important not just because of their supernatural revelation, not just because they display the glory of God, but it is because they confirm what was written about God. That term, what was written, if you follow that term, scriptures or what was written throughout John, you see the primacy, the the priority of God's revelation in the past as it reveals Christ and promised Him who is there in the present among His disciples. This is really clear in John 6. Jesus, when He claims to be, He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet do not believe. Jesus, even as He proclaims and declares His divinity of who He is, still says to them, look, I've said these things, but you don't believe Me. What has Jesus done? He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They're mad. They're saying he's claiming to be this blessing. He, he's claiming to be God himself. And they, said, they questioned in verse 42, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answers them. Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But he says, it is written in the prophets. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, say to you whoever believes has eternal life. So we've got to understand what it means to believe. What it, what it means for us to believe that Christ is the Son of God. To believe that He is the Redeemer that was promised. And He says, look, it was written. It is written. He goes on to critique them when they say, well, Moses didn't say that. He says, look, if you understood Moses, you would know who I am. So what's the problem of our unbelief? 
Our problem of unbelief is that we've bought into a lie. Our problem of unbelief is that we think we are the arbiters of truth, just as we saw Thomas in his declaration, unless I see, unless I feel, I will never believe. What does Jesus do? Jesus graciously makes Himself known and He shows His divinity, His power, and He shows His grace, His love that He did not have to show. And what is Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. So I want us to look at seven, these seven signs of Jesus briefly. And we're just going to run through them because... We've covered them already. I hope you'll remember as we look at these. But I want us to see, all right, what's the purpose of these signs? The purpose is to display the glory of God, the fulfillment of what was written in Jesus Christ. So John has been saying this, though these things are written so that you may believe. He did a lot of other signs, but the ones that John records are really important. He says, look, I'm writing down these signs, these particular important signs because they declare that Jesus is the one who was promised, the one it was written about, that God has kept His Word. For you to believe is to believe that God is true. That He speaks the truth. So the first one we see is the changing of the water into the wine at Cana. Jesus does this first sign at a wedding And what? It displays His glory and His disciples believe, but what did it do? We looked back when we walked through John 2 and at Isaiah 25. The promise that Jesus provide a better cleansing because one, Jesus took the cleansing vessels, the water, the purification vessels that the Jews were using to wash hands, to keep water on hand, and He uses that and produces wine. He says, you can't make yourself clean. I'm the one who's come to make you clean. But even as He does that, as He looks forward to His own wedding day, we look back at the promise in Isaiah 25 where Jesus would reign in His kingdom and the blessings would overflow before Jesus is the benevolent King. The same King that if you were in Sunday school this morning, as you read in Numbers, the King who was promised in Balaam's oracle, who would reign, who would conquer the enemies of God's people, That is the King. That is Jesus who reigns. He declared that just in that first sign. Just in that first sign. It declares who Jesus is. Not just that He can do some miraculous work turning water into wine. It's a declaration. It's a supernatural evidence of the truth of reality. The second one. Some would argue that this isn't one of the official signs, but it's definitely a miraculous work. I think Jesus clears the temple in John 2. And what's important about this one is that it's a work where one man is able to clear the temple out. He declares that you shall not, my Father's house shall not be a house of trade. When he's questioned, why did you do this? On what authority? He promises and says that this temple will be torn down. That it will not stand. And even as they condemn Him, as they're angry with Him, Jesus, by clearing the temple and promising 
that it will not be there. He creates a sign that points to that the temple is but a pattern. As we've been reading, you've learning in the last few months in Exodus as the instructions are given to Moses for the tabernacle. If you read in Hebrews, it says, according to the pattern shown on the mountain, that the temple and the tabernacle were but a small sign that pointed forward to the kingdom of God, the dwelling of God, the temple of God in heaven itself. Jesus says this temple, it's passing away. The temple will be destroyed, but in three days I will raise it again. He declares His own power over death. He declares that worship, as we see also with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, that worship will no longer be bound by the temple in Jerusalem, but we will worship in spirit and truth, for God will dwell with us. The same promise He makes in John 16 as the Holy Spirit will dwell with us and help us to understand, cause us to be convicted, cause us to know the truth. We've seen that He's the benevolent King. He's access to God, for He is God Himself. We see in John 4, His healing of the royal official son again in Cana. And we see that even as Jesus is rejected for who He is, people are still coming to see a sign. He condemns them. But what we see in this healing of the official son, and we see it again, the multiple healings that Jesus does, is the fulfillment that Jesus is the Redeemer, the Messiah, who will heal His people. Now this comes from Isaiah 57, verse 14 through 21. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Does that peace, peace? sound familiar the same words shalom that jesus spoke to the disciples as he appears resurrected before them unbound by locked doors unbound by walls peace peace i will heal we see the healing of the lame man in Jerusalem and the growing conflict because Jesus heals on the Sabbath. It's a recognition that the understanding of what was revealed in the old is understood incorrectly if you don't anticipate how it looks forward. For just as the temple anticipated what was to come, so did the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath anticipated the rest that God would provide. But you see, Jesus heals the lame man, demonstrating again His healing powers, but it confronts this supernatural sign that He performed, confronts the the pride of man's heart, it confronts the sin and rebellion, for man wants to be in control. But we see that the Sabbath has a greater purpose. Hebrews 4, 8-10, through 10, For Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Jesus performs the sign not just to display who he was, but to confirm that he has been. Why do you think he says when he uses all these I am statements? I am the life. I am the true I, truth. I am the way. I am the bread. I am the living water. I am the light. He's declaring, look, I am because I've always been. I've never changed. God has never changed. Yet what's wrong with us in our unbelief? Just as we, again, Sunday school, I love how it ties together. What happens in their unbelief? We forget what God has done. Jesus feeds the multitude in Galilee, the fifth signs. It shows that He is the bread of life. We read about that in John 6 but it shows God as provider. The manna from heaven. Jesus is the one who will provide all that we need. We shouldn't try to do everything in our own power. We must depend on God for what did He just say in Isaiah? I am with He who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I am here to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus is God who is our provider. He heals the blind man in John 9. Miraculous work of a man blind from birth. He opens his eyes to see and declares, I am the light of the world. Declaring, look, I am the truth. I am the way. I bring light to the blind. Again, fulfilling promises from all over the Old Testament. And then seventh, one of the most powerful one, the, the climactic sign, He raises Lazarus from the dead. As if we needed a, a better demonstration. Lazarus in the tomb, four days, stinking at the Word of Christ, as He speaks the truth, Lazarus, rise! Lazarus, come out! Jesus isn't just demonstrating supernatural power. That's there. He's declaring the truth. He is the Creator who breathes life, who the creation obeys the very commands. He's proven that on the sea when the, the winds and the waves that storming all around, He controls everything. He is the Creator. All things were made through Him. All things were made by Him. All things were made for Him. All these signs, they declare the truth 
of reality who Christ is. One theologian has said this, he said, No other use is here signs and miracles than to be aids and supports of faith. They serve to prepare people's minds so that they may give greater reverence to the Word of God. The miracles, miracles are called signs because by them the Lord prompts people to contemplate His power. His power not just revealed right then and there, but His power because look, He promised them what would happen there all the way back in the Old Testament. He has not changed. His truth remains. His promises stand. The signs of Jesus are supernatural displays of God's sovereignty in reality. He displays His power and it's an awesome thing to behold. Many see, many believe, but many also see and don't believe. The reason they don't believe is because they don't see the connection. They don't receive the truth that Jesus is God. Jesus displays His power, but these displays demonstrate the concrete reality of Jesus' divinity. Not only that, that Jesus is divine, that He is God in the flesh, but it, they demonstrate in concrete reality the truth that God's redemptive promises have been fulfilled. That God's redemptive promises have been fulfilled. They are signs because they point to the reality. And the reality is what we must believe. The reality that, as John says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. What's necessary for us to have life has been written. Is that not... We, we're so blinded by the world that we live in, our own perception, the, the influences of culture around us, and our own pride and sin. Like We're broken people. We don't know if we have another second. In all of our attempts to control our life, we think, oh, I've got time. I've got time to consider. I've got you know, opportunities to consider. There's so many options I could look at. But look, the reality has been set before us. We as a people are condemned for we have rejected our Creator. Living in sin is living in rebellion against the One who created us. The One who has brought about all things. And that truth has been presented to us in John's Gospel. Why do you think John 1 is a parallel to the creation account? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because we need to hear the truth that this problem goes back to the beginning. We are in need of a Savior. And what's necessary for us to know has been graciously, wonderfully, lovingly given to us in God's Word. But will we believe it? John has written for us get this, I know it's so easy to approach Scripture, especially 
in our day and time as just this collection of stories, just words that were written down that we think we somehow take it and we separate it out of reality as just legend or myth. But this is reality. John wrote this book 2,000 years ago. He wrote this letter with specific purposes. He wrote this letter with specific references to works that had been written hundreds, if not a thousand or more years before. Like, think about that. Don't let that pass over you quickly. John has written for us a historical, personal, eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Like the words that we are reading here are His personal account, His eyewitness evidence of the truth, what He saw, and we know it's reliable. We could go into, and we talked about that a year ago, walking through the reliability of Scripture, looking at this. We know this is true. We know that He is testifying to this. This is not just some myth. It's the written account of a man who walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, watched Jesus perform all these signs, and he wasn't saying, look at all these miracles he performed. He said, look at what these miracles say. John watched him suffer. He watched him die on the cross. He took the mother of our Savior and cared for her. He got up that Sunday morning and at the news of what Mary Magdalene said, he ran to that grave. He looked into that tomb and he saw that it was empty. He walked with the risen Savior. He shared broiled fish in the upper room and then on a campfire at the beach on the Sea of Galilee. He walked with him along that coast, hearing him talk to Peter, hearing him give instructions for the birth of the church and the mission that he would send. John's Gospel is not just some story to read and consider. John's Gospel is his story. It's history and it's history with a purpose that John has made clear to us in these words. These are written. These signs, these declarations, they're written so that you might believe. It's all been written so that we might believe. And by believing that we might have life. What does this mean to believe? John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5, 38-47, And you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. 
talking to the Jewish leaders, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think in, that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What is Jesus saying in that paragraph? He's saying, look, you have claimed to know Scripture, but you didn't see me in Scripture. So why has John written this Gospel? So that we might see Christ in all of Scripture. So that we might see Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's revelation. That even as we would read from the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We believe that all of this is true. See, we must believe that Jesus is the one who was promised. We must believe that the one who was promised was promised because of our sin. We must believe that the one who was promised was promised because God the Father desires to demonstrate His glory and His grace to an undeserving We've already heard this morning. There's freedom in that. There is wonderful freedom in knowing what we were created for. And that despite our rebellion, despite our sin, God has made it possible for us to live in that freedom. To live as we were created to be. But to do so means that we believe all of this to be true, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that He has died for our sins. But my question for us, because we can hear all this truth, is is it true of our lives? We're called to ask ourselves do I believe 
Is it evident that I'm believing? For the non-Christian and the Christian alike, you must ask yourself, do I believe? Have I trusted in this truth? As I see the Lord revealed in His Word, as I see His promises kept, His promises made, and all of them fulfilled in Jesus Christ who's come and died for us, who dwelt among us, who lived among us, as I hear John's testimony written down for us so that we might know what happened, do I believe? And it's not just mere intellectual assent. It's, has this changed everything about how I live? about how I go about my day. Because you see, John promises life. But this isn't just eternal life. This isn't just a ticket to heaven. This is life here and now. Because what is eternal life as John defines it? It is to know God and His Son whom He has sent. So does your life reflect that truth as you're going about your day when you get up in the morning do you know that truth do you stand confident saying i know i'm a child of god purchased by christ's blood forgiven because he is gracious or do we look just like the rest of the world seeking to hold on to our kingdoms whatever they look like instead of submitting to the king who submitted to the will of God that we might have life. I was reading a portion of John Bunyan's famous allegory last night. And you, many of you have probably read Pilgrim's Progress and you may remember the story of a man named Talkative. Two characters, Christian and faithful, are walking along the road. And this man comes up to faithful and says, Oh, I would love to join you on this journey to the celestial city. They're on their way to, to heaven, walking through life's trials. And at first, faithful is impressed, so impressed by the words and the manners of talkative who seems to know so much about theology, seems to know the Word, and it speaks of how that truth is so profound and has affected him in such a way that he just loves that truth and he wants to talk about it again and more and more. Let's let our conversation be characterized by it. And Faithful kind of moves over to the side and he starts talking to Christian. He says, Christian, this guy seems wonderful. He... He's talking of all this glorious truth. He seems to know the realities of heaven, the realities of this salvation that's been purchased. But Christian has to tell faithful, I'm sorry, but I think you're deceived. He says talkative is just that. He knows how to talk. He knows how to present himself. But Christian says, I knew of him back home. He lived in the city with us. I'm surprised you've never heard of him. You see, the world knows everything about Talkative. They've seen all of his declarations, his 
assent to the truth, the things of the Lord, the things of Scripture. But here's the thing. Talkative is just that. He is all talk. But his life shows no evidence of the new birth. He loves the things of this world. At home, he is a different man from what he is out in public. He says, beware of talkative, for he will love to talk about the things of God. will love to demonstrate his knowledge of the Scripture, knowledge of the truth, but he never has acted upon it. And if you ask him, how has this truth changed your life today? He will run away. So sure enough, faithful begins to ask probing questions. He asks talkative, okay, you know this truth, you've declared this truth. Now, what, how has this affected how you react to your family, how you talk and lead your family? And he said, oh, let's just talk about its wonderful effect of the glory of salvation. He said, no, let's, let's get practical. And talkative gets offended. He says, I don't know why you're asking questions like this. And he leaves their company and goes the separate way. Now there's much to be learned from that example, but there's a lot to be convicted of. I read that allegory last night and didn't feel qualified to preach this sermon this morning. You see, how... Do our lives reflect the truth? Do our lives reflect the truth that we believe? And not reflect in a form that we must be perfectly holy because we know we're not going to be. But as First John, John tells us in his first letter, verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But here's the thing, to believe, is to live in a posture of constant repentance. To believe is to know our shortcomings before a holy God and to recognize His wonderful grace, that grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ. To believe is to recognize this. John 14, verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. To believe these signs is to believe that Jesus is God, but it is to believe, as I said earlier, that the promise is true and the promise was necessary because of our sin. You see, it's still grace upon grace. But He desires for us to have life. So this looks like for students, for young people, 
when you're going to school, when you're making your friends, when you think about your future, how does your future look to live in light of the redemption that Christ has purchased for you? How does it look to pursue a life of holiness separate from the world because your eternity is what matters? For parents, as you think about your kids and you think about how you're going to raise them and prepare them, how you're going to extend the truth to show them the truth of who Christ is, how can you declare to them, look at who Christ is. Look at what He has rescued us from. And you can ask the question, do you believe you can have life in His name? We can look at the world and find all the negative examples that we need. But here's the question we must ask ourselves. Perhaps, one, you've never seen Christ as Lord. You've never seen Jesus as the Redeemer and Savior. John's written this so that you might believe. Believe these words and find eternal life in our Savior who promises to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us from sins, and to give us His Holy Spirit to empower us to live a life in light of what we were created to be, not a life controlled in bondage to sin. And Christian, this is a challenge for us. You see, John's Gospel, these words, so that we might believe, because inevitably we're all going to fail. Inevitably we're all going to fall short. Inevitably we're going to look and be drawn to the world and we need the reminder constantly of who Christ is. And John's Gospel is a grace upon grace for us. Because what's the truth? All of the Christian life must be repentance. All of Christian life is the recognition that God has provided life for us when we didn't deserve it. And He's brought that life to us when we believe and trust in Him. So my question for all of us this morning is our life characterized by belief? This is going to change the way that we function and live as a church. For our confidence is not in ourselves, not in our ability, not in our understanding, but our confidence is in the blood of Christ which rescued us from hell. The blood of Christ which has washed us clean. The power of Christ which enables us to live in light of His kingdom instead of our own. But are we living in light of that? How different... John's first letter is a wonderful test for us to understand whether or not we believe. Do we look different from the world? Do we act different from the world? Do we look like the people of God when it's portrayed positively in Scripture? Do we show the same kind of grace that we're called to show? Because just as Christ was sent into the world, He now has sent us. Do we believe that? And is that evident in how we are willing to sacrifice of ourselves for others? So that they might be cared for. 
so that they might know the promise of the feast that awaits us. So that they might be healed of all that is breaking them now, has broken them in the past, and that they can know they can be made whole by Christ because of our testimony of who Christ is. Are we being lights unto the world to declare, look, you are broken and in sin, but God has provided a way of rescue. He has shown Himself, revealed Himself to us so that we might not be in bondage to slavery to slavery to sin any longer. When we look at the signs of Jesus, we not only see the supernatural display of God through His Son, declaring the promises that have been fulfilled, but we also see the supernatural mission on which we are now sent to be a light into the world, to be testimonies just as John has done by writing this book so that we and that others might believe. But we must remember this truth. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, the wrath of God remains upon you. But Christian, for you, your testimony of belief, your testimony of faith, your testimony and preaching of this hope that believing in the Son has eternal life is the testimony that you have been sent to give to those who still have not obeyed, to those who still remain under God's wrath. So let's consider, if you haven't believed in Christ, believe in Him today and find life. And Christian, let our lives be characterized by belief, by love, by the truth of God's Word, so that the world might see and that the world might believe. Let's take the mission, the commission of Christ that He has given us seriously. And let's consider how we might testify just as John has testified that Jesus is the Son of God and that through Him we have life.